Amen. So we are in the second week of a sermon series that is walking through some of the hard, some of the challenging, some of the heavy experiences that Jesus had in the last week of his life. And we're looking at these hard and heavy experiences so that we might be all the more joyful next Sunday as we celebrate not just the suffering and the death of Jesus, but the landing point, which is the good news of his resurrection. The sermon series is called Betrayed, Lonely, and Misunderstood. And this morning we're going to explore the very real and the very heavy loneliness that Jesus experienced. But before we get into that, um, I, I, need to, uh, I, need to make, I need to make a public apology, and I want to tell you why. So last week, I, uh, I talked about superheroes as an illustration. I thought it was just a, a lighthearted, you know, clever illustration about the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And then I got this email. The title was Superhero Sermon. And here's, let me read the email. Uh, you can go to the next slide, too, because this slide is referenced in the email. You guys remember this? Black Panther, I referenced Black Panther. Okay, if you weren't here, you didn't. If, if you weren't here, I'm sorry. Here's the email. Dear Carl, as a representative of the fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I've never gotten an email with that opening line before. <laughs> Maybe I need more emails with this. Okay. I regret to inform you that the man you have chosen to portray as the Black Panther the image on the right, is in fact Eric Killmonger, T'Challa's first cousin and arch nemesis. Ah! I got the, I picked the wrong picture. I request that you fix this mistake via a public apology (laughs) or face a fine of $100 cash placed in an unmarked envelope in my box. I will then proceed with damage control and attempt to amend the psychological effects of your naive mistake. (laughs) Regrettably, Mr. Caleb C. Dillon. I apologize. Sometimes I try to speak with with nuance and clarity and and I get it wrong. And for anybody that I've offended, I am am sorry. I am sorry. (laughs) But at least I know that the high school kids are listening to my sermons. Yes! (laughs) Or at least the first four and a half minutes when I put superheroes up on the screen. Uh, But with that, we're continuing. The illustration last Sunday was meant to be a way to help us get into, understand, think, and feel, and experience some of the things that Jesus himself experienced. And so I'm going to try to do that again with another uh, little opening story, kind of opening idea that, that I hope will pave the way for us to see the text and feel the text in the way that maybe Jesus himself felt it. We're going to talk about loneliness, and to get there, I want to ask you a question. The question is, do you have a favorite spot? Here's what I mean. Picture this. It's a Saturday afternoon, and by some miracle of miracles, you have a couple hours of free time. I know, I know. Some of you are thinking, Carl, that's not a miracle. That's an impossibility. It just doesn't happen. But just go with me and imagine you have a couple hours of free time, and you think, oh, I'm going to get my favorite book. 
and I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to sit in my favorite spot, you know, where the sun shines just right through the window and you relax. Do you guys, does anybody, you know what I mean? Do you have a favorite spot? Yeah, I'm seeing some head now. Like, sometimes it's a spot in your house. Maybe I've got a, a friend and she's like, no, 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 it's just any sunny, sandy beach. That's my favorite spot. I don't care. Or maybe it's out in the mountains. But you know, they take on almost this, this, almost this magical feel to them. Like, oh, when I'm, when I'm in that spot, there's just comfort and there's joy. So think about your favorite spot for a minute. I had a favorite spot. Um, my wife and I lived in Beijing for a few years, and uh, part of the time that we were living there was, it happened to be the time that my oldest son, my oldest kid, was born. Now, I, the favorite spot was in this apartment, and it was this big, overstuffed blue chair. It looked Something like that. That's not the chair. I looked for a picture of the chair. I couldn't find the chair. I guess I don't take pictures of my chairs often enough. But I just remember loving the way I could just sink like it was a really deep chair and I could sink all the way back or lounge against those big arms. And so this was my happy place when I lived in Beijing. Well, one morning in the very, very wee hours of the morning, I was with my my son, who was just a few days old. Now, Tobiah was born a month early, so not surprisingly, he was a fussy baby. Nothing against Tobiah now, if by chance he's in the room doing slides, but just then, you know, as, a, as, a, as an eight-day-old or whatever it was, he's a fussy. Anybody here know what it's like to have a fussy baby that wakes you up in the middle of the night? Okay, we've got some about-to-be new parents um, in the room, so I'm, I'm going to give some tips. I'm going to give some Pro tips? I mean, I've got four kids, whatever. If that makes me a pro, great. So Tobias fussy. So I'm walking around. I'm doing the walk, you know, and you kind of walk and you're like walking and I'm trying to soothe Tobiah in the middle of the night. So finally he calms down. But this is a really critical moment when your fussy baby has just calmed down. See, because you're tired, right? And you're going to spend the next 20 years of your life tired. And so you're tired and he just fell asleep and the impulse is to immediately put him back down in his bed. But this is a grave mistake because if you put him down immediately, he's not asleep in a deep enough way, he's gonna wake back up and he's gonna be fussy for the next hour. So you have to resist the urge to put him down immediately, right? Parents, grandparents, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, yeah, tell me about it, Carl. I've been there too many times, right? You've got to resist the urge. You've got to wait for the full head flop and the drool. When the head flops and the drool comes, then you can put him down. But simultaneously, right, simultaneously, if you hold him for too long, then the baby will become so comfortable in your arms that pretty soon the baby will be like, uh, excuse me, I don't sleep anywhere except for your arms. And this is also... A problem, because we got to have baby sleeping somewhere other than my arms. So I get him to sleep, and I think to myself, okay, I've got I to gotta hold him a little longer. So what do I do? I sit down in my favorite blue chair. I'm sitting in my favorite spot. Okay, I'm tired, but I'm, I'm holding my favorite son. He was my only son at the time, so I can say this, right? He was my favorite, absolute favorite kid. This is good, but I'm afraid that I might fall asleep. So in order to keep myself awake, 
because I don't want to fall asleep. You don't fall asleep with the baby. I don't, in order to keep myself awake, I grab my computer and I think, okay, I'll check email because email is clearly the best way to keep me awake in the middle of the night. My favorite spot, hold my favorite kid, life is good, and the very first subject line of the email just punches me in the gut. I knew it was coming. I mean, I, I didn't know when. I thought maybe it would be a few months from now, but I kind of knew it was coming. The email said, Grandma Esther passed away last night. And suddenly, in that spot, all sorts of joy and all sorts of sadness smashed together in my life. You guys know what it's like to have all sorts of joy and all sorts of sadness just smashed together. And I found myself befuddled. What am I supposed to do with all of these emotions? And I remember, somewhat strangely, I remember that in the midst of, of thinking and feeling and processing all that, one of the things I very clearly felt was I felt loneliness. It didn't really make any sense. I've, I've got my boy, my, you know, my, my wife is in the room next door. I, I love my wife. I've got good friends. I've got good relationships. And yet, I think this happens somewhat often. In, in this confusing kind of whirlwind of life, we find ourselves, even if we have good, solid relationships, we find ourselves surprised all too frequently with an experience of loneliness. Here's what we said last week about any and every suffering that we might feel in the course of our normal human lives. We said, there is no suffering that God himself has not also suffered. No matter your pain, God is with you in that pain. We said, if God could come to earth and be fully human, if it is okay, if it is good for God to become fully human, then we who far too often look at our humanity and think, you know what I'd really like to be? I'd like to be a superhuman. I'd like to be more like a superhero. Maybe we need to realize that if God can become fully human, it's okay for us to be human too. Or heck, maybe even like God said when he created humanity, it's not just okay, it's good. What about you? One of the very common and real sufferings we experience in our life is loneliness. When have you felt or experienced loneliness? See if you can recall a moment, a time, a place. Maybe like me, it was experienced in the midst of just a, a clash of many different realities in life. Maybe it was a longer season that endured and was challenging pretty recent study out of Harvard University gave some, uh, some fairly sobering statistics about loneliness. Um, our new report suggests that 36% of all Americans, that's one in every three, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. And not surprisingly, loneliness appears to have increased substantially since the outbreak of the global pandemic. 36%. When have you experienced loneliness? Interestingly, 
if these statistics show accurately, then we can know one thing for certain. When we feel lonely, we are very connected to the majority of the people around us who are feeling the exact same thing. One of the invitations I make all the time when we talk about especially hard, heavy, painful internal realities is I make the invitation to always start by simply naming it, acknowledging it, saying, you know what? I can raise my hand with that. I can say, yep, that is something I struggle with. That is something that hurts. That's something that's heavy in my life too. Um, I, uh, I, in fact, meet somewhat regularly with a counselor myself to process all the things going on in my life. And I was talking to my counselor about this idea of naming things that are hard and real in my life. And he said something that just stuck with me. He said, here's why it matters to name it and own it. He said, if we can name it, we can own it. And what we own, we can steward. If I'm willing to name it, and if I'm willing to own it, it doesn't have to control me, but I can suddenly be freed to have a little influence over it. So, when have you experienced loneliness? Start, start with a reality that you probably have, and it's okay to say it. But the next question is then the follow-up. When that happens, when that happens, when you feel that, and maybe even you've got some memories, some moments, maybe even some long seasons that come to life, let me ask you this follow-up question. You're in that place. You feel disconnected from whatever relationships are around you. You're in that place. How do you respond? What do you do? Where does your heart go? Where does your mind go? Where do your activities go when you feel lonely? Turns out, I think Jesus felt loneliness a lot in his life, and I want to read to you a moment from the end of his life where I think this loneliness was quite poignant. It happens in a beautiful little spot. You can still go there today, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's a picture of the modern garden that probably is somewhat similar to where Jesus went. It turns out that the Garden of Gethsemane is just outside Jerusalem at the base of a little hill called the Mount of Olives. And that's significant because as I read the story of Jesus' life, and as I really looked into it this place, I think it's safe to say that the Mount of Olives was actually one of Jesus's favorite spots. He went there often as a place to find solitude or solace or prayer or comfort. A couple quick examples about how meaningful the Mount of Olives in general, and I think by extension, the Garden of Gethsemane in particular was for Jesus. The author of Luke's Gospel says, each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Or again, a little later on, again, Luke says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Turns out, here at the end of his life, Jesus would yet again seek out this place of rest and solitude, this important and meaningful place. He would seek it out in one of the most troublesome moments of his life. So I'm going to read the text. If you want to go there now, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. I invite you, encourage you to open up your Bibles, whether paper or on some device. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Here's where we are in the story. 
Jesus entered, the, entered Jerusalem as king and was celebrated. And then Thursday of that week, he shared with his 12 disciples the Last Supper, the meal that we remember when we celebrate communion, as we'll do later on in the service. And at that supper, Judas left and went to betray Jesus to his enemies. As we're going to read, right after the supper is over, they go out so that Jesus can have a time of prayer at the Mount of Olives. I'm going to read Matthew 26, verse 30. I'm going to skip over a couple verses and pick it up at verse 36. But I want to give two just brief little notes of words we're going to read in the text. Two words you're going to read are keep watch. Actually, three words, I guess. Keep watch, because keep watch is two words. And cup, that's the third word. See how I did the math there. Keep watch is simply a phrase to mean vigilant prayerfulness. Jesus invites his disciples to be with him in this intense moment of prayer. Second, cup. It's a pretty common symbol for suffering. And so when Jesus prays, please take this cup from me, he's saying, is there any way I can not suffer what it is I'm about to suffer? That's the context. Um, Here we are. This is Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 30. Uh, Go back one slide. Um, The scripture says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And after this, two more times, Jesus would say, keep watch with me, stay awake with me, pray with me. He would say to his friends, those who were closest to him, will you be with me in my hour of great need? And then again, two more times, his friends would fall asleep, unable to be with him in his difficulty. It's interesting Many people, many of the things, the commentaries I read and my own observation says, you know what? That had to have been a lonely experience for Jesus. And sure enough, many people look at the whole life of Jesus and they say his life was one of great loneliness. Even though he had close companions and great connectedness, there were many ways in which he felt a distance from the people around him. We're going to talk next Sunday on Easter Sunday about how part of that is because so many people completely misunderstood who he really was. 
But here's the interesting observation, both about Jesus' loneliness and often about ours. Loneliness really isn't about whether or not I am physically with people. Loneliness, I think, actually, is also not, not about whether or not we have good relational connection. When I was feeling lonely in my apartment in Beijing, I had many strong relationships in my life. I knew that, and I often felt that, and yet I could feel lonely. Plus, we know, I can be completely alone by myself with no other people around and not feel lonely. We call it solitude. It's a good thing. Or I can be surrounded by all sorts of people and yet still feel isolated, even when physically with people. And it's really interesting because as I looked at definition after definition, article after article talking about loneliness, one of the things that came up so often is this phrase. It defined, it, it, uh, de the definitions started with something like loneliness, a state of mind in which. Loneliness is not about how many people there are or aren't around you or how many friendships you do or don't have. Loneliness is an internal experience, which is not to say which is not at all to say that therefore I'm downplaying it's significant, but rather it's to help us understand what it is. So let's circle back around to this question. If the majority of the people around us feel loneliness, if not are currently feeling loneliness, what do you do when you are feeling lonely? What do you do? I came up with three observations that seem to be um, echoed in a number of different things that I read. Um, three different ways that, I, that are pretty common to respond to loneliness. Honestly, pretty common to respond to any sort of suffering that we might feel. First, we're good at distracting ourselves. Did you know, did you know that YouTube never turns off? It never turns off. You can wake up at 2 a.m. and it's there. You can be, don't tell my boss, but you could be in the middle of work and it's right there. Just call, hey, car, right? It's like the siren saw. You gotta lash yourself to the mast of the ship if you want to resist. We live in a world filled with endless opportunities to distract ourselves. Because far too often, even though we know it's not true, far too often we behave as though maybe if I just put my attention on something pleasant, the unpleasant things will go away. Turns out, back in the 90s, I found a book and a couple articles that basically this was their advice. Do you feel lonely? Join a club, volunteer, get a hobby, exercise more, read more books, make new friends. Distraction is a natural and common response to loneliness. But if loneliness is a state of mind, then distraction couldn't possibly be a healthy way to process it. So, for many people, we move on to stronger substances. Instead of just, just distraction, what if we numb ourselves? What if we buy into the advertisement that says, if we just drink enough, if we just consume enough of this or that, it'll make our lives shiny and beautiful like all those people on TV. We live in a world that spends lots of money on numbing agency, agents. One of the other things I've observed myself do this might sound familiar to you. It's, it just, you say it out loud and it just doesn't make any sense. But if I observe my behavior, I have to acknowledge sometimes I wallow. 
in my loneliness. Is that how you spell wallow? I wallow? I wallow? Is it? I got a thumbs up. Thank you. Okay. Whew. All of the insecurities coming out right now. Here's the way I see it sometimes, right? I, I feel loneliness for whatever reason. Again, acknowledging it comes at all sorts of different times and places. So what I do is I go, you know what will make me feel better? I'm going to look at pictures of people who look happy and content and have perfect relationships. And maybe if I look at pictures of other people's allegedly perfect relationships, and I know that that was picture number 735 that they waited to get just to find the perfect image that looks, I know that they might be miserable inside, but the picture makes them look so happy. And you know what? Maybe if I look at picture after picture after picture, Maybe if I feel bad enough about my loneliness, it'll eventually go away. Saying it out loud like that doesn't make any sense. And yet, sometimes, we do it. One of the interesting things about any of these, we distract ourselves, we numb ourselves, we, we even do this weird thing of wallowing in our loneliness. They all ignore the fact that loneliness is primarily something going on inside of us. And if I'm going to deal with it, I have to deal with something not out there, but something in here. Author uh, Tony Campolo talked about this in a really profound way. He was talking about the way we look for relationships, we look for connections, we try to find the cures to our problems in other people's approval, as though if we can just do enough of what other people want, maybe it'll make all of our problems go away. Here's what he said. Campolo said, uh, we tell ourselves that once we have a feel for others' expectations, we begin to behave in the way that we believe will earn us the most approval and acceptance from them. We far too often look around and go, yeah, I'm hurt, I'm suffering, I'm lonely, I've got this going on inside me. Maybe what I need to do is what everybody around me expects me to do. But Jesus, it turns out, took a radically different approach to responding to the very familiar challenges that, just like us, he faced at the end of his life. So what did Jesus do? What do we see Jesus doing in the garden that, in fact, echoes what Jesus did throughout his life? I want to mention three things, and none of them are necessarily, like, earth-shadowing new observations, but I think the order of priority in which Jesus followed them is of particular importance. So Jesus was just betrayed by a friend. He was feeling sorrowful to the point of death. I think it's fair to say he was feeling lonely. One of the last words he said on the cross before he died was, God, why have you forsaken me? And what does Jesus do? One of the first things he does is he goes to the garden so that he can wrestle with God in prayer. And by wrestle, I mean Jesus says some hard things. He says, God, I kind of see what's coming, but is there any plan B? Can we take the other option? Is there a way out of this? Because I see what's happening, and if, you, if my opinion matters, I'd like to register my vote for different option. Take the cup. Eh, let's put the cup over here, and let's have the vacation on the beach instead. That sounds nicer. Jesus started by finding a space to wrestle with God. Too often, when we face whatever loneliness or struggle we face, we start by looking at the expectations of the world around us, and Jesus starts by getting space to connect and wrestle 
with God. Which inherently means, and here's why I think, honestly, sometimes we avoid honesty and authenticity with God. Because when we wrestle with God, like we see modeled time and time again throughout the scriptures. Again, we say this all the time, but read the Psalms and you get a picture of the sort of honesty and, and kind of non-churchy language that God wants us to speak out loud to wrestle with him. But when we do it, the thing that's going to happen next is God's going to say, that means you got to wrestle with yourself. And Jesus was confronted with, this is my will, God, but I know that your will is different. And that is a challenging reality to face. When we can honestly say, this is my will, it's what I want, but God, am I willing to honestly say, I actually want your will more? I find it interesting that Jesus went first to prayer and connection with God and an honest wrestling with himself. I mean, in a sense, Jesus sought solace in his painful moment in life, not by connecting with his friends, but rather by spending time in solitude. Jesus invites me, maybe the, maybe the healing balm for loneliness is getting more comfortable being alone with just me and God. I mean, if what I'm doing is spending my life trying to figure out who I am based on the voices and expectations of the people around me, and not based on the God who made me, I'm just setting myself up for disappointment. And that, it turns out, is the theme that I saw most often in so many things I read. Uh, here's counselor psychologist Les Parrott. We are not lonely because we're isolated from others. We are lonely because we are isolated from ourselves. The only way we figure out who we truly are is by connecting with the God who made us. Spiritual author Thomas Merton said it this way, the person who fears to be alone will never be anything but lonely. And here's the good news. Learning to be alone with God and with ourselves is in fact the most powerful and effective way to find true connection with others. Because if I connect with others based on what I think they want me to be, how I think they want me to behave, on the expectations I've, I'm guessing they're placing on me, if that's how I seek connection, it will always disappoint because I'll know it's never real. But the life that Jesus lived modeled the most powerful and secure sense of his true identity. He knew God made me this way. And so I will live as the person God made me to be, and that will be the secure foundation for all of the connections I make in this world. Author um, and sociologist Brene Brown described it this way. Our connection with other people is only as solid and deep as our connection to ourselves. In order for me to be connected to you, I have to know who I am. I have to be connected to myself. And I think what we end up doing 
is we end up desperately searching for connection with other people when we have no idea who we are. Jesus, at the end of his life, was betrayed and eventually abandoned by the people closest to him. On the cross, he admitted that he felt great loneliness. And we see time and time again in his life that this is how he responded. He first went and he wrestled with God. And by going to his creator, he then wrestled with himself, saying, who am I? What do I want? How will I live? And then, even as we see, he invited his friends to the garden. Then and only then, he did what he could to remain with his friends. Not as the first course of action, but as a result of his wrestling first with God and with himself. Which brings us, as always, to the question, if we can acknowledge that in our lives we suffer, we struggle, we hurt, even in a world where we're connected every moment of every way with devices and technology and friendships, we still feel loneliness. What's your move and what's my move going to be? And so I'll say the same thing just one more time. Notice the order. Where do you run first when things get hard? I invite you to consider the way Christ went. First, he connected first with God. He connected second with himself. And then he connected third with others. The relationships of Christ were the outflow of his first relationship with God. The one and only secure foundation for any of us in our lives. I said last week, um, I mentioned at the opening of the sermon, there is no suffering that we can face, that God himself does not suffer. And no matter what we're facing, we can know that God is not just with us, but he is with us inside of the very suffering. He feels and is hurt by the very things we feel and are hurt by. And that is a powerful source of strength. I was given, um, I, was, I was reminded of this beautiful scene at the end of um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in The Magician's Nephew, there's a character named Diggory. And if you're familiar with the story, there's, I mean, it's, you know, it's a really beautifully woven whole universe that they live in, but the, at the end of The Magician's Nephew, Diggory manages to get, more or less, into the heavenly realms. And while he's there, Diggory is pondering the fact that his mother, back on earth, is dying. And Diggory's hurt by that and sorrowful by that. But while Diggory is in this alternate world, he finds the fruit of an apple. And there's a character in the story, the witch. That's, that's the bad character in the story, just to clarify. And the witch says, oh, Diggory, if you take this apple and give it to your mother, it will cure her. Huh. The bad person in the story says if you give somebody the apple, it'll give them life. Have I, have I heard this before somewhere? And Diggory is tempted by that, but then Diggory, as the story goes on, comes face to face with the great lion Aslan, who in this world 
is the character who portrays God. And Diggory is talking to Aslan, and Diggory is expressing the great sorrow he's feeling, the great desire he has for his sick mother back home, and the great hope he has that somehow she will be healed. And Lewis writes these words describing this interaction between Diggory and Aslan at the end of the story. Diggory says, uh, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment... He felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. So often, when whatever hurt it is comes our way, our desperate desire is like Christ's in the garden. Can we just take it away, God? God's, re God's response is always first and foremost, remember, I'm with you. Would you pray with me? God, as we reflect upon the last days and the last hours of your life, it's striking how greatly you suffered. But as we reflect on this heavy and, and hurtful life you lived, We pray that it might give us comfort in knowing not just that you are with us, but God, more than any other being in all creation, you, God, completely understand. You feel. You're, you're hurt and broken with us in the midst of everything we're facing in our lives today. Because of that, God, may each and every one of us turn first to you for all of our needs in all of our life. And everybody said, amen.